When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think shares bright ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. For Think Again, our producers unearth rare gems from these interview archives and surprise me and my guests with unexpected ideas that spark unscripted conversations. Today, I am very psyched to be joined by poet, musician, and actor Saul Williams. Let's just call him artist since he defies neat categorization. His 1998 film Slam won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. He's recorded five albums and published four books of poetry. And his newest book of poems, which you may pronounce variably USA or US, uh, says Saul, as you wish, captures some of his thoughts on this country and this moment of history after several years of living abroad. Uh, welcome to the show, Saul. Why, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, let's just start with the title of the new book, with us and then the little A in parentheses. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? What's that getting at? I look at America in a way where I see see the the role of identity politics playing so heavily in the psyche, in the American psyche, and and there's so much talk about, you know, all of these social constructs such as race and gender, all these things that we play with. I wanted to play with the idea of us and them and really just focus on us and who that us could be as an African-American male, that us could be grouped amongst like, oh, us black people or us men or us poets or us, you know, I was just playing with that, that idea of all the different people who identify as us and what they may mean when they throw that out there. Right, because us is powerful, but it also implies a them. Right, always. exactly. It kind of stems from this love that I have for Sufi poetry. Uh, one poet in particular, Hafiz, who has a poem where he says, the other is a lie. Something you were saying about identity politics got me thinking about this debate that's now raging around campuses in the U.S. where, you know, there have been a bunch of blog posts and articles, professors Mm -hmm. complaining that they feel threatened by the, like... What's um, your pronoun? The identity politics. Yeah, Yeah. well, just the sense, yeah, they don't feel safe to, to speak their mind. They don't feel free anymore. Ideas that people are being censured on campus. Almost old guard of, mm-hmm. of liberal humanities-based people yeah. against the kids, you know? In yeah, well, I mean, it's the politics of language, which is something I became aware of, I guess, super young, because I would feel things. I'd feel things when I'd be in a room, like in acting class, and people would say something about dark humor or black comedy. And I'd be like, what does that mean? Like, oh, it's kind of dark. I don't know, um, you know, you might be a little uncomfortable. It's kind of dark. And if you look at me, you'll notice that 
I'm kind of dark. <laughs> and I always wonder about that and the stock market crashing on Black Month. You know, like, right. so there's a politics of language. So then you add on top of that this identity politic, you know, of, of like, for example, I have a kid who's in college. The first thing that happened when they got there was like, there's a name tag. You should put your pronoun. And my daughter was actually kind of like, well, asking me, like, what does that mean? Put your your pronoun? And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 that's the, you know. And I'm priding myself on hipping the youngster on the thing. I know when she comes home right. for break, she'll be hipping me on everything, right? But um, of course, like, do you want to be identified as he or she or it or nigga? You know, like, what? And I have to say that, like, coming from a totally non-marginalized group in the U.S., I still balk whenever I have to fill in white or Caucasian on account of well, my dad's crazy. side were Jews from Eastern yeah. Europe, my mom's side were Italians. And it's they new. Were, it, that's new for Jews and Italians to be identified as white. Right. That's modern. That didn't always happen. And yeah, and they were not welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. The, you know, I'm, however, at the same time, I do understand enough about society and how things work to know that I am also just de facto the beneficiary of certain privileges, et cetera, well, et cetera, well, well, yeah, that's... that do play in demographically when they try to figure out like of course, who but should I be know hired I, or whatever. It's true. I moved here with my wife from Paris. She's Rwandan born, but we came from Paris with her 12-year-old. And she was amazed at ha- having to fill out things for schools, having to check those same boxes. Like, what, you guys do that here? They don't do that in France. You know, all of those boxes surrounding the idea of race and having to identify, especially with a mixed kid. But when we talk about this modern politic and escaping the binary and all of this thing, I think it's amazing. I think it brings us closer to that space-age lyricism that I've been like living for and fighting for, like, I I love it. In terms of professors feeling censored or what have you, just, you know, open up to it. I mean, the main thing about being a teacher is that you need to remain a student. And of course you step on toes, you know, like it happens. Right. Sorry, I keep trying to... That's the new pronoun. <laughs> what's, the, what's the new pronoun? <laughs> That's the new pronoun. Yeah, seriously. I identify as... Bing! <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we'll keep that. So, here's how the podcast works. Our producers have chosen short interview clips for us to listen to. They could be on any subject, and they are a surprise to me, too. Are we ready? Let's do it. All right. Okay, so this one is U.S. General Stanley McChrystal talking about ISIS. When we think about ISIS now, I think it's important to try to understand what they are and why they're being as effective as they are. First, they shouldn't be as effective as they are. They've got a doctrine that most people, particularly in the Muslim world, don't buy into. And they don't offer a clear road to a better future. It is a road in the minds of many people back to the seventh century. And that's not somewhere a lot of people want to go. So why are they effective? The first is to understand they're effective in a very unique environment right now. The Middle East and North Africa are in disarray. They're in an environment that I liken to a patient that has HIV AIDS. HIV AIDS does not kill a patient. What it does is it weakens the immune system until a very weak disease that normally would be pushed off easily becomes potentially life-threatening. 
And that's that region right now. And so a disease like ISIS, which otherwise would be laughable in certain times, is not. ISIS is a military problem only in its smallest sense. It's a geographic, diplomatic, and social problem in its broadest sense. And then it is a communication problem at its very core. ISIS. So many weird things to say about ISIS. I mean, we all are abhorred by the existence of this gang movement, what have you. And to see it as a reality is scary. But to not look at the root of that reality, to not realize that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Gulf War and and, and pre-9-11 and post is what fed this construct that allowed these people to become so anti-Occidental, like, fuck everything, (laughs) even fuck the non-hardcore Muslim. Like, it all stemmed from the role that the U.S. government and corporations played in invading this land, not only with guns, but with oil rigs, big business, and anything to keep those big businesses flourishing. Anything. Profiteering from security. Profiteering from fears. And people having the clarity of mind to go, that's bullshit what they're doing. Fuck them and everything that they're about. Totally. Did you read that article? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But in the New York Times, there was this article on how the operation within ISIS with respect to, like, having captured all those Yazdi women and basically prostituting. Yeah, I read that. Horrific, horrific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no doubting the historical legacy that has led to Mm -hmm. this moment we're in, right? But so now what? Like, Okay. Yeah. One, you know, this is history repeating itself. I mean, uh, this is a land founded on rape here in the United States. You know, by 1800, there were over one million biracial, quote-unquote, African-American biracial people. 99% children of rape, right? Native Americans, rape. All right? Because pioneers were coming in droves as men. I mean, Columbus, if you ever read Columbus's journals and the way that he had to punish the soldiers who traveled with him for raping natives, it's crazy. Now, I know that's a long time ago. And, and you're asking me about what's happening right now. And so what do we do? Right. What do we do? How do we outvest from this systemic repetitive usage of warfare that drills into the earth and into women and and drills itself into the psyche as a necessity. Rape has always been the tool of war. It doesn't take investing in more security. It takes actually investing more in education. It takes improving to the world that you don't necessarily have to have the biggest army to be the superpower. But right now, but right today, now, how would we, ISIS, what, you know, what, what do you do? Me, yeah, like, what do you do? Try to talk to him, like. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I th- you know, it's probably past that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, you, you got to go in on some superhero shit. But the thing is, who are the right people to do that and how do you do that? I yeah. mean, like, 
I think that we do have to come to the table with people that we're not used to coming to the table with. We have to start valuing more opinions than just allies and try to shake down to the crude fucking truth of where to point that fucking gun. I mean, that's what those guys have to do. Me, I'm just gonna try and write a better poem, a better <laughs> song that makes somebody go, wait, what am I doing this for? But yeah. you know, I'm a, yeah, we see that we have to take drastic, drastic means. I mean, uh, oh, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking about war, fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can move on to the no, next No, 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 but it's true, it's true, it's like, I do believe something has to be done. I do believe people need to go over there, but I say people, I say people, I say people, I say people on their feet, vulnerable people, vulnerable people, not invulnerable drones right. who can mistake, you know, a wedding party for a terrorist cell, who can mistake, you know, those mistakes are easy to make. And when those mistakes are made, that is how ISIS is born. ISIS is born from a fucking million American mistakes that were never shared with the American public. Right. But do I understand the sort of nonsense that would make people want to join the thing? Join a tea party or wave a Confederate flag or... Not fully. A lot of but, reasons to be angry. But a lot of yeah. people have a lot of reasons to be angry. Yeah. We need to become more transparent. I mean, like, shit. It would be great for the U.S. faction of it to go over there apologetically, like, fuck, fuck. We're so, fuck. You know, like, there has to be that. Like, I don't know, send the poets. Send the poets. Right. I'm down. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I've met well over 10,000 poets. An army of poets. I, I, like, I like. am <laughs> willing. In return, what I want is health care for my family, free education, right? I don't mean to sound naive at all, but I think that we have to have more faith in our resources. Here we have many resources that are underutilized, like one of them being the fucking brain. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah, our least utilized and, and most limitless human resource. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yes, send over the poets and painters and just, it may sound naive, but you know what? Send over the seducers, like, to charm the ISIS guys and say, you guys are doing that, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you call that a gun? You know? I, mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, but I think we do have to get creative and we do have to admit to the role that we, somehow that plays into it. We can't the destroy old- the day and save it, right? I, honestly... I've been to Palestine, I've been to Turkey, I haven't been all over the Middle East, but I've been a few places, and the way that poetry resonates there, the role of the Sufi, Hafiz, Rumi, like, these are, like, I remember when we burnt down that motherfucking library in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like around 2003, Yep. and in it were these ancient texts one of the oldest Qurans known, you know, to humankind. The library was looted and burnt. And also these old poems, poetry is such a rich part of that culture. I think that that's what we're missing. Send in the poets. You know. With guns. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, 
don't want to make your art for you, but maybe at some point this is a song or something, you know, this idea. <laughs> a brilliant, beautiful idea. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Do you sleep? Maybe you don't sleep as much as you'd like to. I know I don't. But if you sleep at all, you know how important it is to have a durable, comfortable mattress that has just the right amount of give for your body. You know, as I know, the horror of the overpriced and uncomfortable bed. The bed where you wake up like, ow, I can't move my neck. Happily, there's Casper. They are disrupting the sleep industry by not disrupting your sleep or your wallet. Their obsessively engineered, shockingly affordable mattresses use both memory foam and latex foam, so no matter how you sleep, your body is perfectly cushioned and supported. They deliver, and if you're not happy after 100 days, they'll pick it back up and refund your money. And as Think Again listeners, you can get an additional $50 off your mattress by going to casper.com forward slash think and using the code THINK at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. This is easy, folks. Casper's making a better mattress at a better price so you can get a better night's sleep. Even if, like me, you are so busy doing what you love that you never get enough sleep ever. Okay, this is Bill George, a Harvard Business School professor, talking about leadership in the context of the 2016 presidential race. Take two contrasting leaders, President George Bush, uh, whose policies I didn't like, and President Barack Obama, who sometimes wasn't the greatest administrator in the world. But both of them are people of character, and they've been true to who they are. I can disagree with their policies, or I can disagree with the way they run the government, but that doesn't mean they're not people of character. Unfortunately, a lot of times in politics, with the high media intensity and the long cycle we have, I mean, right now we're in the middle of a political campaign that's running 16 months, 18 months, that's way too long. How about six weeks, like the Brits do it? But in, you do test people in that period, but you get into a lot of uh, media playing the media. I'm not blaming the media, I'm just saying they play the media and it creates a lot of attention and they say dumb things. You know, today's world, everything you say is gonna come back to haunt you. So I'd like to see more authentic people running for president and holding political office. Unfortunately, I think a lot of authentic people, leaders have gotten turned off by the whole process. One of the things I really admire about you as an artist is that you really don't seem to care at all about what is packageable, honestly. <laughs> like, you're not packageable. I mean, you like... <laughs> You know, I mean, look, I mean, people can call you a rapper. They What's can call funny you. would be if I really did care. And I'm like, but what do you mean? I'm trying my hardest to be packageable. But well, I guess that's what I want to know. Um, yeah. I mean, in a way, because because it seems like what I'm reading from the outside is that you are just doing what you want to do. I can't imagine that you don't have like marketers and other people who have come through the revolving doors telling you, you ought to do more this, you ought to do more that, we don't know how to sell this. For like, of course. How does it work for you? Well, the way it works is quite simple, is I really suck at shit unless I really feel it passionately, you know? So that even in terms of acting, which is my first love, if I don't really believe in the thing I'm auditioning for, I give a shitty audition. If I feel it at my core, I walk into that audition like this shit is mine. Problem is that it's rare that I have an opportunity to walk into something like that because half the shit that I encounter is like, 
do you want to be this cop, this doctor, this lawyer, this thug? So half of the time, I'm like, I don't know how to play the game that way. I can't, I can't bring myself to perpetuate the bullshit. I can play a fucking murderer, a pimp, a fucking, <laughs> you know, serial killer. I mean, like, I started dreaming of acting when I saw The Shining. I wanted to be Jack Nicholson, you know, like, that's my dream shit is horror, or thriller. Like, that's what I've always wanted to do, actually. So it's not about what the idea is. Yeah. It's more about the quality of the art. Yeah, the quality of the art. The quality of the writing, the quality of the idea, or are we just here to make money? You know what I'm saying? In terms of everything else, poetry is absurd in terms of capitalism, free market, and trying to live off of that shit. So how I've been able to accomplish that is by maintaining that absurdity. You know, like when I did my first book with a major press, it was in 1999, a book called She. And I did it with MTV Books slash Simon & Schuster. And I was approached by like Norton and different book companies, some were academic and what have you. But I found it interesting that MTV had come to the table. And part of my deal was, okay, we're gonna make some like commercials or shit for the station because actually I don't believe that poetry should be some like peripheral. Let's go for the mass market. Right. That doesn't mean it's gonna change the poem. I'm just trying to change how you treat the poem. If I can figure out how to get a person who doesn't necessarily like or have any interest in poetry listening to a poem for a few minutes, then the least you can do in your executive position is trust me when I tell you, if you put this poem out there, you'll get some results. Right. Right? Right. right. And it's that way that I've played with the idea of packaging weirdness that has allowed me to you know, have this sort of like bubble of weirdness around me. And I've played with that consciously. But simultaneously, it is true that I don't know if I would know how to do it any different. You know, so like when I'm doing my first album with Rick Rubin and he's wanting me to do a straight ahead rap album. And I'm like, I rapped when I was 15 I'm past that now. I, ju- I just can't revisit my, my old style. That shit is like, this to me, this is the most modern shit. And I'm listening to Portishead. I'm listening to Goldie. I'm listening to Tricky. I'm listening to Bjork. I'm listening to this shit. I'm playing it for him. And I'm like, no, we're going this direction, dude. I can't help it. This is where it's fucking going. Trust me. And years later, you hear like Timbaland and Missy Elliott sampling, you know, like some drum and bass or Bjork shit. And you're like, yeah, exactly, dude. Let's go there. And it's not to say he didn't come with ideas, too. He came with, like, chopped and screwed shit, which I didn't even get at the time because it was fucking 98. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, like, not from Houston. Me, I've I've, I've always, like, being there to witness the birth of hip-hop, so to speak. I mean, like, I'm not old enough to necessarily have witnessed the birth, but being young enough at the time to see it reach the mainstream. So are we talking about like 85, 84? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I'm, you know, witnessing all that stuff and being like, holy shit. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And getting it, like this is us, the same way a kid now will get an iPhone or, you know, and just be like, this is us, this is, you know, or this app is us or what have you. That was my technology, hip hop. Right. And I just could not bring myself to dumb it down when I was going to reach the national or international stage because it was too young 
to put any like false definitions on. I was like, no, it's young. We have to keep exploring. Yeah. It's too early to cash in on some formulaic shit. We have to keep exploring. That first album was ridiculous, man. That was so oh, he, awesome. Sony like, didn't even want to put it, it out. Was so awesome. No, Thank I mean you. like going no, no, yeah. Sony didn't and... even want to put it out at the time. They were like, this is not hip hop. And I'm like <laughs> talking to the dude in the suit. And I'm just like, yo, <laughs> this is so hip hop. <laughs> you have no fucking idea. And luckily, Sony France heard it and was like, what? We'll put it out. France has always been a little ahead of the curve. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when I arrived at Sony France and they put out Amethyst Rockstar a year and a half before it came out in the States, mm. they also told me of a few other instances when they had to do the same thing with Sony America, where they had to take artists from them and release them there first. Those artists were Jeff Buckley, Fiona Apple, Macy Gray. Then it's not Sony who did this, but it was in the UK that did The Roots and Germany, The Roots, way before they came out here. Hendrix, Terrence Trent Darby, Seal. What do those guys have in common? They don't fit the projected image of what you're supposed to see from the hood in America, which is what America propaganda projects, which is what made Sony say to me, that's not hip hop, and made me say to them, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I am that shit, I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And those companies are doing that because somebody's buying that because somebody wants some reflection like that of yeah. those caricatures of and course. those images. You know? Of course, we do. I want them too. <laughs> yeah. I love it when it's well done, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I'm like listening to Lil Dicky, like, yeah, dude, you get it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, right. you know? Um, and so it's been a hellified dance because at some point I realized that my game would be to maintain that unmarketable, packageable thing because I didn't want to be boxed in. Right. I wanted the freedom to feel authentic writing a book of poetry, to feel authentic releasing an album, to feel authentic acting in a film, and for none of it to feel like some side gimmick or some shit. So you, you just know? elbowed yourself some elbow room, basically. Yeah. You just <laughs> I, that's exactly what I did. And I had to keep doing that. Like, it, it was, it's all strategy. Niggy Tardus is pure strategy. The makeup, the, the, all of that is just like, okay, if I don't go this far out here, like, I need, I need whoever's around this thing to think, oh, this dude is crazy. He'll do anything. Because at some point, yes, that does become the tool, so to speak, sure. where it's like, okay, I'm interested in hearing this because I know that it could go any and every direction, and it probably will. And I creatively need and want that freedom. All right, let's move on to uh, see what they've got for us next. This is a social media pundit, Charlene Lee, talking about the Pope taking selfies. I consider Pope Francis to be one of the most interesting, engaged leaders on the scene today. He had a mission when he became the Pope, and that was to bring down this power distance between the Pope and the rest of the Catholic Church, and frankly, the rest of the world. One of his first actions that he did was to step down from the dais to be amongst the people. 
And one of the things he started doing digitally was to tweet a lot more, be on Facebook through his various teams. But he also started taking selfies. He would go up to people and say, take selfies with me. I think in many ways, he very systematically decided how he wanted to engage. One of the things that allows Pope Francis to be such an engaged leader is that he has this interesting mix of confidence in himself and his position, but also a tremendous sense of humility. Well, yeah, I mean, I too have felt like, wow, this is a pretty cool pope. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm like, it's about fucking time. <laughs> like, he better. The Catholic Church is a culprit. You know, I mean, like what they have been behind, what they have fostered has held humanity back. In so many different ways and also what they've <laughs> covered up. I mean, they're yeah, coming out of this I, hideous well, yeah, we, scandal. You, we talk know. about that, you know, in terms of little boys and all that shit. But on top of that, I mean, like, I mean, my birthday is February 29th. Okay. Leap year from the Gregorian calendar as a result of Pope Gregory. The purpose of that calendar, really, right? One of them was what? To separate Passover from Easter, Hanukkah from Christmas. And it forms a grid that we must then find a way to literally think outside of that box. So as someone who has had less birthdays than the average person who is supposedly my age, I'm 10 years old, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I think you about feel that time a lot. Catholic Church has done a violence to time in a way and both yeah. and it's and, and I only use that as an example. I mean, I know very well like why people go to church. It's another mandate. You read the Bible, the Bible will tell you that the Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday. Right. So why do we go to church on Sunday, Christians here? Right. One might argue that it was to put the power of the institution over the power of the word. Most people don't understand why Christmas falls where it does or that Easter, for example, was a maternal holiday, a celebration of fertility. Right. Right. That's covered up. Even the idea of taking the woman out of the divine right. and creating a trinity that is a father, a male child and a ghost is so fucking obvious, <laughs> but so hardcore in its ramifications. Right. It sets back the clock. Yeah. Literally. I identify heavily, let's say, with the teachings of Jesus. Why not? They're Why, good teachings. You know, <laughs> I believe that he'd be anti the Catholic institution as well. Like, you wouldn't see him with the fucking gold chalice. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Right. Like, not at all. Um, so, what do you think about the power of ideas, like, outside of the protecting force of an institution? You know, like, left to their own devices, are, would ideas be sufficient on their own? Like, do we not need institutions, you well, know, to carry them forward? These things, I think it's inevitable you know like I had this amazing conversation with my dad before he passed and my dad was a Baptist minister who pastored a church and around the time I was 18 or 19 and really like finding the courage to say like I'm not Christian I don't identify as that and 
but still, like I said, identifying with spirituality and exploring anything from the, the Gnostic Gospels, the Dead Sea Scrolls, to Eastern literature, to the Kabbalah, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, all of this stuff. I'm exploring this stuff. And I find this one book called what? The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, which covers the 18 years that Jesus is not in the Bible because right. Jesus isn't there from 12 to 30, right? Right. It's interesting because during those 18 years, he has Jesus learning how to meditate, studying Buddhism, going into Egypt and getting into like the ancient comedic lore and like going to all these places around the world and delving into all of these different spiritual practices before coming back home. And I remember coming home from college with this book and I, I go to my dad and I'm about to say something. I look on his shelf in his library and the book is there. And I'm like, you have this book? He's like, yeah. He's like, have you thought about this stuff? He's like, yeah. I was like, if you know that, for example, like I would always point to like a girl that I knew in junior high school, a Jewish girl, Jory Mazzola, who was like the sweetest girl in class, who like shared her snack, helped you with your homework. I, I was like, that's the best example I know of someone doing unto others as you would have them do unto you but she's born into a Jewish household. Is she going to hell, Dad? Not until she accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And I was like, I always knew there was some bullshit in that. Like, really? She's got a sign on the line, even though she's actually fucking doing it. She's embodying the thing you're talking about, but she needs to, really? Does she have a choice in the type of family she's born into? Like, really? What is this shit, right? So I asked my dad, like, if you know of the interconnectedness of spiritual disciplines. Why do you say fix in this missionary Baptist, blah, 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 blah. Right. And he was like, I was an only child. This is the family I grew up in and I understand more, but if I went that direction, I'd be an only child again. Hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then his like flock wouldn't have him right. either, right? right? I mean, those people wouldn't have had him. Exactly, and he was sincere in his mission. So I know that for the most part, for anyone who identifies with any of these religions, I have more in common with them than I don't. I'm just pinpointing the delineation between the institution right. and the spirit. Right. It's that us, them. I mean, the moment you make a church, you know, the moment you make a building right. and you put a name over it, whatever, right. like it starts, that process begins. Exactly. Like, That's in the Tao. Naming is the beginning of all particular things. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 10,000 things. And yeah. Names. All right. Saul Williams, it has been so amazing having you Thank on this you. show. Thank you. It's a pleasure and, to be here. And pretty much all of this has had the flow and rhythms of poetry, but I wondered whether you would take us out with an actual official poem from your new book. Sure. Personals. Counterfeit colonel of one-man army seeks heiress of wonder bread for Delhi of dogmas. Farm-raised catfish of fathomless beginnings seeks mermaid of primordial waters for upstream marathon and depthless stream of consciousness. Armless conductor of styrofoam orchestra seeks brass-sectioned robot for radio broadcast of new symphony written in blood. C-sharp for details. Dead organist seeks prenatal plastic surgeon for everybody knows job in purgatorial pursuit of skeletal bones sent down the wrong pipe. Handyman foot doctor with specialty in dog paws seeks Elizabeth Taylor type for long walks in circles and pumice stone skipping in the fountain of youth. Young nigga seeks truth. 
And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. If you're listening and you're liking what you hear, please go to iTunes and rate or review the show or to whatever service you're using to listen to it. Your ratings and your reviews mean a lot to us. They make all the difference in terms of whether other people are going to hear the show and whether the show stays on the digital airwaves. Join us next week for a very special guest who shall remain nameless until then. Red stain on the concrete, disdain for the bare feet. Work, work, makatongo, no perk for the bongo. Prez is chatty, fresh from disparity. Arms wide open, strange fruit smoking. Paint on a canvas, carved from a pancreas. Blue for the water. Red for the daughter Money, money, money Money green where the land was First hand, second, second hand laws Horn of the clock bike Thorn of the crown spike Smile of the victor Child of the prisoner Statues of martyrs Hackers as artists Shout out to Atlantis First hand, second, second hand us Spike, horn of the clock bite. Masters of institution. Spike. Horn of the clock fight.